Chapters 47, 48, 49, and 50 of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 47 Well, I never, said Biddy, bursting into Ruth's room in her usual thunderclap way, and seating herself on the edge of a chair as she polished her face with the skirt of her dress. "'As sure as my name is Biddy. "'I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. "'Well, I've been expecting it. "'Folks that have ears can't help hearing when folks quarrel.' "'What are you talking about?' said Ruth. "'Who has quarreled? "'It is nothing that concerns me.' "'Don't it, though?' replied Biddy. "'I'm thinking it will concern ye to pack up bag and baggage "'and be off out of the house, "'for that's what we're all coming to, "'and all for Mrs. Skitty.' "'You see, it's just here, ma'am. "'Master has been threatening for a long time to go to California, "'where the gold is as plenty as blackberries. "'Well, mistress told him if he ever said the like of that again, he'd rue it. "'And you know, ma'am, it's she that has a temper. "'Well, yesterday I heard high words again, "'and sure enough, after dinner today, she went off, "'taking Sammy and Johnny and loving the bit nursing baby on his hands "'and the boarders and all.' "'And it's Biddy McFlanagan who'll be off, ma'am, "'and not be made a pack-horse of, "'to tend that teething child "'and be here and there and everywhere in a minute. "'And so I come to bid you good-bye. "'But, Biddy, don't be out of keeping me, ma'am. "'Pat has shouldered me trunk, "'and you see I can't be staying when things is as they is.' "'The incessant cries of Mrs. Skitty's bereaved baby "'soon bore ample testimony to the truth of Biddy's narration, "'appealing to Ruth's motherly sympathies so vehemently "'that she left her room and went down to offer her assistance. "'There sat Mr. John Skitty, the forlorn widower, "'trotting a seven-months baby on the sharp apex of his knee, "'alternately singing, whistling, and wiping the perspiration from his forehead, while the little skitty threw up its arms in the most frantic way and held its breath with rage at the awkward attempt of its dry nurse to restore peace to the family. "'Let me sweeten a little cream and water and feed that child for you, Mr. Skitty,' said Ruth. "'I think he is hungry.' "'Oh, thank you, Mrs. Hall,' said Skitty, with a man's determined aversion to owning— checkmate i am getting along famously with the little darling papa will feed him so he will said skitty and turning the maddened baby flat on his back he poured down a whole teaspoon of the liquid at once the natural consequence of which was a milky jet jewel on his face neckcloth and vest from the irritated baby who resented the insult with all his mother's spirit ruth adroitly looked out the window while Mr. Skitty wiped his face and sopped his neckcloth, after which she busied herself in picking up the ladles, spoons, forks, dredging boxes, mortars, pestles, and other culinary implements with which the floor was strewn in the vain attempt to propitiate the distracted infant. "'I think I will spare the little dear to you a few minutes,' said Skitty, with a ghastly attempt at a smile." while well, i run over to the bakery to get a loaf for tea mrs skitty has probably been unexpectedly detained and biddy is so afraid of her labor in her absence that she has taken french leave i shall be back soon said skitty 
turning away in disgust from the looking-glass as he caught sight of his limpsy dicky and collapsed shirt-bosom. Ruth took the poor worried baby tenderly, laid it on its stomach across her lap, then loosening its frock-strings, began rubbing its little fat shoulders with her velvet palm. There was a maternal magnetism in that touch. Baby knew it. He stopped crying, and winked his swollen eyelids with the most luxurious satisfaction, as much as to say, "'There, now, that's something like.' Gently, Ruth drew first one, then the other, of the magnetized baby's chubby arms from its frock-sleeves, substituting a comfortable loose night-dress for the tight and heated frock. Then— she carefully drew off its shoe, admiring the while the beauty of the little blue-veined dimpled foot, while Katie, hush as any mouse, looked on delightedly from her little cricket on the hearth, and Nettie, less philosophical, was more than half inclined to cry at what she considered an infringement of her rights. Mr. Skitty's reflections, as he walked to the bakery, were of a motley character— Upon the whole, he inclined to the opinion that it was not good for man to be alone, especially with a nursing baby. The premeditated and unmixed malice of Mrs. Skitty in leaving the baby, instead of Sammy or Johnny, was beyond question. Still, he could not believe that her desire for revenge would outweigh all her maternal feelings. She would return by and by, but where could she have gone? People can out travel with an empty purse, but perhaps even now, at some tantalizing point of contingency, she was laughing at the success of her nefarious scheme. And Mr. Skitty's face reddened at the thought, and his arms instinctively took an akimbo attitude. But then, perhaps, she never meant to come back. What was he to do with that baby? A wet nurse would cost him six dollars a week, and, as to bringing up little Tommy by hand, city milk would soon finish him. And, to do Mr. Skitty justice, though no Socrates, he was a good father to his children. And now it was nearly dark. Was he doomed to sit up all night, tired as he was, with Tommy in one hand, and a spoon and pewter porringer in the other? or, worse still, walk the floor in white array till his joints, candle and patience, gave out. Then there were the boarders to be seen. He never realized before how many irons Mrs. Skitty had daily in the fire. There was Mr. Thompson, and Mrs. Johnson on the first floor, and his face grew hot as he thought of it, had seen him in the kitchen looking so Miss Nancy-like, as he superintended pots, kettles, and stews. Stews! There was not a dry thread on him that minute, although a cold north wind was blowing. Never mind, he was not such a fool as to tell of his little troubles, so he entered the bakery, and bought an extra pie and a loaf of plum-cake, for tea, to hoodwink the boarders into the belief that Mrs. Skitty's presence was not at all necessary to a well-provided table. Tea went off quite swimmingly, with Mr. John Skitty at the urn. The baby, thanks to Ruth's maternal management, lay sweetly sleeping in his little wicker cradle, dreaming of a distant land flowing with milk and honey, and looking as if he was destined to a protracted nap. 
although it was very perceptible that Mr. Skitty looked anxious when a door was shut hard, or a knife or fork dropped on the table, and he had several times been seen to close his teeth tightly over his lip when a heavy cart rumbled mercilessly past. Tea being over, the boarders dispersed their various ways, Ruth notifying Mr. Skitty of her willingness to take the child whenever it became unmanageable. Then Mr. Skitty, very gingerly, and with a cat-like tread, put away the tea-things, muttering an imprecation at the lid of the teapot as he went, for falling off. Then, drawing the evening paper from his pocket, and unfurling it, with one eye on the cradle, he put up his weary legs and commenced reading the news. Hark! A muffled noise from the cradle. Mr. Skitty started, and applied his toe vigorously to the rocker. It was no use. He whistled. It didn't suit. He sang. It was a decided failure. Little Skitty had caught sight of the pretty bright candle, and it was his present intention to scream till he was taken up to investigate it. Miserable Skitty! He recollected now, alas, too late, that Mrs. Skitty always carefully screened the light from Tommy's eyes while sleeping. He began to be conscious of a growing respect for Mrs. Skitty, and a growing aversion to her baby. Yes, in that moment of vexation, with that unread evening paper before him, he actually called it her baby. How the victimized man worried through the long evening and night! How he tried to propitiate the little tempest with the caster, the salt cellar, its mother's work-box, and last, but not least, a silver cup he had received for his valor from the Atlantic Fire Company. How the baby, all of a twist, like Dickens' young hero, kept asking for more. How he laid it on its back, and laid it on its side, and laid it on its stomach, and propped it up on one end in a house made of pillows, and placed the candle at the foot of the bed, in the vain hope that the luminary might be graciously deemed by the infant tyrant a substitute for his individual exertions, and how, regardless of all these philanthropic efforts, little Skitty stretched out his arms imploringly, and rooted suggestively at his father's breast, in a way to move a heart of stone, and how Mr. Skitty said several words not to be found in the catechism, and how the daylight found him as pale as a potato sprout in a cellar, with all sorts of diagonal lines tattooed over his face by enraged little fingernails, and how the little horn that for years had curled up so gracefully toward his nose was missing from the corner of his mustache. Are they not all written in the ambitious Californian's repentant memory? End of chapter 47 Chapter 48 How sweetly they sleep, said Ruth, shading the small lamp with her hand, and gazing at Katie and Nettie. God grant their names not be written, widow. And smoothing back the damp tresses from the brow of each little sleeper, she sat down to the table, and drawing from it a piece of fine work, commenced sewing. Only fifty cents for all this ruffling and hemming, said Ruth, as she picked up the wick of her dim lamp. "'Only fifty cents, and I have labored diligently, too, every spare moment, for a fortnight. This will never do.' And she glanced at the little bed. "'They must be clothed, and fed, and educated. 
educated an idea struck ruth why could she not teach school but who would be responsible for the rent of her room there was fuel to be furnished and benches what capital had she to start with there was mrs millet to be sure and her father who though they were always saying get to something to do would never assist her when she tried to do anything how easy for them to help her to obtain a few scholars or be responsible for her rent till she could make a little headway ruth resolved at least to mention her project to mrs millet who could then if she felt inclined have an opportunity to offer her assistance in this way the following monday when her washing was finished ruth wiped the suds from her parboiled fingers on the kitchen roller and ascending the stairs knocked at the door of her cousin's chamber mrs millet was just finishing the finishing touches to the sleeves of a rich silk dress of leela's which the mantra maker had just returned "'How do you do, Ruth?' she said, in a tone which implied, "'What on earth do you want now?' "'Very well, I thank you,' said Ruth, with that sudden sinking at the heart which even the intonation of a voice may sometimes give. "'I can only stay a few minutes. I stopped to ask you if you thought there was any probability of success should I attempt to get a private school.' "'There is nothing to prevent your trying,' replied Mrs. Millet carelessly. "'Other widows have supported themselves. There was Mrs. Snow.' Ruth sighed, for she knew that Mrs. Snow's relatives had given her letters of introduction to influential families, and helped her in various ways till she could get her head above water. "'Yes,' continued Mrs. Millet, laying her daughter's silk dress on the bed, and stepping back a pace or two with her head on one side, to mark the effect of the satin bow she had been arranging.' "'Yes, other widows support themselves, though I am sure I don't know how they do it. I suppose there must be a way. Leela, is that bow right? Seems to me the dress needs a yard or two more lace. Ten dollars will not make much difference if it will be such an improvement.' "'Of course not,' said Leela. "'It will be a very great improvement. And by the way, Ruth, don't you want to sell me that coral pin you used to wear? It would look very pretty with this green dress.' "'It was Harry's gift,' said Ruth. "'Yes,' replied Leela, "'but I thought you'd be very glad to part with it for money.' A flush passed over Ruth's face. "'Not glad, Leela,' she replied, "'for everything that once belonged to Harry is precious, "'though I might feel necessitated to part with it in my present circumstances.' "'Well, then,' said Mrs. Millet, touching her daughter's elbow, "'you'd best have it, Leela.' "'Harry gave ten dollars for it,' said Ruth.' "'Yes, originally, I dare say,' replied Mrs. Millet. "'But nobody expects to get much for second-hand things. "'Leela will give you a dollar and a quarter for it, "'and she would like it soon, "'because when this northeast storm blows over, "'she wants to make a few calls on Snyder's relatives "'in this very becoming silk dress.' "'And Mrs. Millet patted Leela on the shoulder. "'Good-bye,' said Ruth. "'Don't forget the brooch,' said Leela. "'I wish R Ruth would go off in the country or somewhere,' remarked Leela, as Ruth closed the door. "'I have been expecting every day that Snyder would hear of her offering to make caps in that workshop. "'He is so fastidious about such things, being connected with the Tidmarshes and that set, you know.' "'Yes,' said Leela's elder brother John, a half-fledged young M.D., whose collegiate and medical education enabled him, one morning, to astound the family breakfast party with the astute information that vinegar was an acid. "'Yes, I wish she would take herself off into the country, too. 
I had as lief see a new doctor sign put up next door as to see her face of a Monday over that wash tub in our kitchen. I wonder if she thinks salt an improvement in soap suds, for the last time I saw her there she was dropping in the tears on her clothes as she scrubbed at a showering rate. Another thing, mother, I wish you would give her a lesson or two about those children of hers. The other day I met her Katie in the street with the shabbiest old bonnet on, and the toes of her shoes all rubbed white, and she had the impertinence to call me Cousin John in the hearing of young Gerald, who had just returned from abroad and who dined with Lord Malden in Paris. I could have wrung the little Weretta's neck. "'It was provoking, John. I'll speak to her about it,' said Mrs. Millet, when she brings the coral pen." End of chapter 48 Chapter 49 Ruth, after a sleepless night of reflection upon her new project, started in the morning in quest of pupils. She had no permission to refer either to her father or to Mrs. Millet, and being such the case, the very fact of her requesting this favor of anyone less nearly related would be, of itself, sufficient to cast suspicion on her. Some of the ladies upon whom she called were out— some engaged, some indisposed, and all indifferent. Besides, people are not apt to entrust their children with a person of whom they know nothing. Ruth keenly felt this disadvantage. One lady on whom she called never sent her children where the teacher's own children were taught. Another preferred foreign teachers. It was something to say that Alfred and Alfreda were finished at Signor Vici's establishment. Another, after putting Ruth through the catechism as to her private history, and torturing her with the most minute inquiries as to her past, present, and future, coolly informed her that she had no children to send. After hours of fruitless searching, Ruth, foot-sore and heart-sore, returned to her lodgings. That day at dinner, someone of the boarders spoke of a young girl who had been taken to the hospital in a consumption contracted by teaching a primary school in street. The situation was vacant. Perhaps she could get it. Certainly her education ought to qualify her to satisfy any school committee. Ruth inquired who they were. One was her cousin, Mr. Millet, the wooden man. One was Mr. Devlin, the literary bookseller. The two others were strangers, Mr. Millet and Mr. Devlin, and both aware how earnestly she longed for employment. Ruth looked at her children. Yes, for their sake she would even go to the wooden man, and Mr. Devlin, and ask if it were not possible for her to obtain the vacant primary school. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 Mr. Millet sat in his counting-room with his pen behind his ear, examining his ledger. "'Do,' he said concisely, by way of salutation, as Ruth entered. "'I understand there is a vacancy in the Fifth Ward Primary School,' said Ruth. "'Can you tell me, as you are one of the committee for that district, if there is any prospect of my obtaining it, and how I shall manage to do so?' "'Apply,' said Mr. Millet. "'When is the examination of applicants to take place?' asked Ruth. "'Tuesday,' replied the statue. "'At what place?' asked Ruth. "'City Hall,' responded the wooden man, making an entry in his ledger. Ruth's heroic resolutions to ask him to use his influence in her behalf vanished into thin air at this icy reserve, and, passing out into the street, she bent her slow steps in the direction of Mr. Devlin's.
On entering the door, she espied that gentleman through the glass door of his counting-room, sitting in his leathern armchair, with his hands folded, in an attitude of repose and meditation. "'Can I speak to you a moment?' said Ruth, lifting the latch of the door. "'Well, yes, certainly, Mrs. Hall,' replied Mr. Devlin, seizing a package of letters. "'It is an uncommon busy time with me, but yes, certainly, if you have anything particular to say.' Ruth mentioned in as few words as possible the primary school and her hopes of obtaining it, Mr. Devlin, meanwhile, opening the letters and perusing their contents. When she had finished, he said, taking his hat to go out, "'I don't know, but you'll stand as good a chance, Mrs. Hall, as anybody else. You can apply. But you must excuse me, for I have an invoice of books to look over immediately.' "'Poor Ruth! And this was human nature, which, for so many sunny years of prosperity, had turned to her only its bright side. She was not to be discouraged, however, and sent in her application.'" End of chapter 50